What is our expectation of Jesus? And when Jesus may not meet our expectation, the following question that I want to ask of you is, is will we hail him or will we choose to nail him? This morning we're looking obviously at Palm Sunday, a beautiful time in the time of God's people where they celebrated the deliverance of God's people out of captivity in Egypt. Passover was a time where they recognized what God had done for them, how God had delivered them from Pharaoh. But interestingly enough, in this time, we recognize that Jesus' mission was coming closer to be accomplished. And in a moment, we're going to read a passage in Scripture, and we're going to look at how excited the people were. But the other question then we're going to see is how fickle their hearts can be. Friends, what I want to tell you this morning is simply this. In a few short days, songs and shouts of praise would go to shouts of crucify, crucify, crucify. So this morning, we're going to ask a question that I think we all need to look deep in our hearts and examine what our expectation of Jesus really is. And that's simply this. When we look at Jesus, what expectation do we have? Will we hail him or will we nail him? Friends, this morning, what I want to ask is simply this. How many of us in our lives have something happen of which we then say, well, perhaps I'll go to church. Perhaps because of what's going on, somehow God will fix it. Let me throw out a few scenarios. Some of us might be struggling at work. We might have lost our job, or we might be looking at the need of funds. And so in that time, we may say, well, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do what I think I should, and I'm going to expect that by my presence at church, God is going to give me the funding that I need. Some of us might come forward and we might be struggling in a relationship. Perhaps it's in a marriage. Maybe what we do is is we say, well, now it's time to go to church, and by going to church, God is going to fix my marriage. Some of us might be dealing with a problem with a child. And we say, perhaps we're going to come to church, and by coming to church, God is going to fix that problem with my child. Some of us might be looking at an illness or something of which we are struggling, and we come to church and say, perhaps God is going to fix that illness. And the purpose for us in coming is these broad expectations And lovingly, what I want to ask is simply this. What if that doesn't occur? Will we hail our Savior with a little s? But when those expectations that we hold in our desire of what we want God to be do not occur, will then in anger or bewilderment or disruption or confusion, will we turn and yell, crucify? Friends, one of the things that I think is so interesting as I look in scriptures, particularly the stories of the Gospels, is how quickly the hearts of the people who followed Jesus turned in just a few short days. We see, in a moment, individuals hailing the Savior of Israel, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, which means save or save now. Except what we come to find is for them the expectation was not what Jesus had come to do. 
And so, friends, the reason for this morning is simply this. I think at times we come to Jesus with an expectation that he will do something for us that we desire. And what we don't realize is Jesus has done something for us of which we cannot do ourselves. And what I want to encourage you all in is what he has done is the story of the gospel. And that, my friends, is enough. Should God choose to only save, to bring us out of the depths of our sin from the pit of hell of which we are destined for, is that enough? Or friends, when we come to church and we tell God, you're going to do this, or I expect this of you, and it does not occur, or it does not happen in the manner of which we think it should, will our cries turn from praise of hail him to nail him? And what I want to do this morning is ask us to look deep into our hearts and say, what expectation of Jesus do we have? And has what Jesus done on the cross enough to where if all God does is save us from our sins, we can continue to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, Savior of our sins. I ask you to turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to take a look, particularly in the passage of Mark. We recognize that this account is recorded in the Gospels. It is the account of Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, to lay context earlier, what I've said is this is the time of Passover. Individuals are essentially moving to Jerusalem to bring a sacrifice and atonement for their sins. They're also remembering and recognizing, celebrating what God had done for them back when he delivered them out of captivity in Egypt. Passover, as we know, is the final portion of sort of the ten movements or ten plagues that God put on the Egyptian people. The final one was obviously the plague on the firstborn son. God told the, God's people to essentially slay a unblemished animal, a lamb, and put the blood on the door so as this plague passed over, any marked door would not enter and the firstborn would be spared. We know that obviously that did not occur with Pharaoh's son. His son died, and at that point Pharaoh said, finally, I am done. You may be free. And God's people returned to their land. But we also know in that story that God's people, thinking that they were now free, were then pursued by Pharaoh to the point where we recognize in the story the parting of the Red Sea as God leads, or as Moses leads them out of captivity. God delivers them and brings them into the promised land. All of these things are reverberating for God's people during this time. Interestingly enough, we fast forward thousands of years and there's this individual by the name of Jesus. People are seeing that there's something unique about who this individual is. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him do things that no ordinary person can do. And obviously, individuals are beginning to talk that there is something different about this man. 
Interestingly enough, we move to Passover and Jesus comes forward and enters into Jerusalem. And that's where we find our story today. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark 11, 1 through 11. And I'm going to read the account of what we see and is called the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Such an interesting story, isn't it? We see Jesus entering, procuring the donkey, answering prophecy, as we will see in a moment. And we see many people shouting out praise to our Savior. Let's take a moment and look at this. One of the things, friends, that I want to encourage you in as we look at the story of the gospel is simply this. When we examine verses 1 through 7, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. But again, I ask, what is your expectation of Christ? What is your desire of Him? And so with this, what I would tell you is we must remember that Christ comes with a specific mission, which is to save us from our sins. Friends, what I want to tell you is simply this. When we do not hear in church that we are dead in our sin and there is absolutely no means for us to get to God on our own, something is terribly awry. I am all for teaching and preaching about how God wants to give us a better life, how God desires to bless us. And should he so choose, then praise God for it. But friends, Jesus did not die on a cross to give you a better life. He died on the cross to give you life because you are dead in your sins. And that's why Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Friends, we must remember this and we must recognize it because far too often do we move to the blessed life of Jesus, the joy of what Jesus does for us, the joy of what Jesus has done for us on a temporal level. And should he choose to do so, then praise God for it. But friends, the purpose of Christ and his mission was to die upon a cross so that we may have eternal life and be declared righteous for the one who was righteous and yet bore our sin. Friends, I ask and I remind you that hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke to this, demonstrated that indeed God's plan 
in redemption to bring his people back to him was to give his son, to beat, to destroy him on a cross so that we may have eternal life. Friends, at no time in this does God's plan go awry. On a temporal level, people would see, they would think that here comes a king who is going to save them from the tyranny of Rome. No, friends, the king comes to save us from the tyranny of our sin and death and destruction so that we may have eternal life. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. In fact, I encourage you to read all of Isaiah 53, but I want to focus particularly on these few verses. Remind us of the plan of God, what God was going to do, the mission of his son. And it says simply this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, through, or, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Friends, it is interesting that this is happening and being stated hundreds of years prior to Jesus' coming. Yet the statement as we examine in the Hebrew is passive, complete, and whole. How can someone who hasn't even seen Jesus speak to the future in totality with a passive voice? Friends, the prophet is speaking the word of God. And the word of God was to bring about a savior who wasn't going to meet our expectation. He was going to demonstrate our desperate need. And so friends, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is simply this. As we celebrate Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus, I ask lovingly, what is your expectation of God? What is your expectation of Jesus? And has he not met that expectation? And how is your heart toward him when Jesus doesn't meet your expectation and desire for a better life, more money, better health, a better marriage, better family relations, better this, better that, more this or more that? Does your heart turn and yell, crucify, crucify, crucify? Or does it continue to say, hail him, hail him, loud Hosanna, savior of my soul. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what is at the core of our lives. And that's what we need to remember as we move toward Easter Sunday. Friends, I find it so interesting that here it is Sunday. And by Friday, the one who is hailed king will be dead on a cross. 
And I ask a simple question, what in the world happened in those short days? I don't know about you, but talk about a schizophrenic relationship. How can you go from hailing someone to yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify? And friends, the more that I look at this, I'm enamored with the fact it's because the people who hailed had a false expectation of who Jesus was. Friends, remember that Christ comes with a specific mission, which is to save us from our sins. That's what he was here to do, and that's what he has done. The next thing that I want to ask is simply this. As we see in verses 7 through 11, while we recognize that Christ came with a specific mission to save us from our sins, do we only hail him with selfish expectations for personal gain? Do we expect Jesus to do what we think he should do for us? Or have we surrendered our life to him to where we can truly say, what? Not my will, but thy will be done. Friends, I want to ask, deep in your heart, what expectation have you laid out to God beyond your salvation? What demand have you made of him? What do you expect him to do for you? And friends, if he has not done it, is he still Lord of your life? Because so often I see so many come with an expectation that God will do this and God will do that and God will make this and God will bring that. And when he does not, there is no God. There is no Savior. There is no King. Friends, what I want to show you is simply this. Notice essentially how Mark is writing. He turns, and I want to just go through a few things theologically for you, but then I also want you to enter into the heart and the expectation of the people. We turn, we see Jesus saying, hey, I need you to go get me a donkey. Now, why is that? Interestingly enough, we're sitting there and we're saying, is Jesus tired? Did Jesus not really want to come in on his own two feet? Did Jesus need essentially the Jerusalem version of Uber? No, friends. Jesus is answering his mission and demonstrating that indeed he is the Messiah, Yeshua, our Savior. He is answering the prophecy made in Zechariah and saying, I am the one. I am the one spoken of. I am the one mentioned of back in Isaiah. I am the one who will be bruised, beaten, crushed, and destroyed and bear your iniquities even though I am not guilty. Friends, it's so interesting because we see people following ahead and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a word essentially meaning save or save now. 
It is a beautiful term. It is a wonderful term. But here, friends, what I tell you is what's being said is false expectation. As we look, I want to read this to you. The triumphal entry takes place at the beginning of Passover week, which recalls the Jewish people's liberation from Egyptian slavery. The pilgrims now anticipate the messianic liberation from Rome's oppression. Jesus tolerates this brief period of celebration in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but with the certainty that nothing will obstruct the divinely ordained death of the Messiah. Friends, people are chanting to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because their expectation of Jesus is that he is there to save the, 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 uh, God's people from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. That's what they're calling out. That's what they're thinking. They are thinking that this new person who created miracles, etc., etc., is now going to overthrow the Roman government and finally liberate God's people so that they may have their kingdom now. And friends, I find it so interesting because think about this for a moment. This morning, literally, we would yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, by Friday morning, we would stand. And I want you to understand this. As we look at the, how the Hebrew is written in a moment, we wouldn't just sit there and say, Crucify, I, I don't know, maybe, kind of, sort of, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Friends, when we read this text in a moment, the people, the same people who are saying, hail him, are yelling, nail him. Crucify. 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 How do their hearts change? Friends, we must remember and recognize that Christ comes with a specific mission, which is to save us from our sins. We also need to really ask, do we only hail him with selfish expectations for personal gain? Do we have an expectation of Jesus that we demand, and if it does not come, do we change our heart? Friends, I ask you, Number one, please read this week the passages in between 11 and 15. But we are going to turn to chapter 15. And in this time, what we have seen is simply this, that the one who was hailed has now been betrayed, imprisoned, beaten, and mocked, and now stands before judgment with Pilate. Pilate essentially being the Roman sort of leader of the area of Jerusalem. Because the Jews of the day, according to their law, could not convict Jesus with what they wanted to convict him of. 
And I ask again, how do we go in a few short days from hailing someone to the anger of yelling, crucify? We turn in our Bibles, we're going to read the story of Mark 15, Jesus before Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Now this is to Jesus. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. Friends, if you've ever studied this, this is the absolute most unjust trial ever recorded in human history. And yet what is so interesting is in the unjustness, the one who was just did not try to justify but remained unjust so that we might be justified through his righteousness. Now it was custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. So interesting that a few days earlier it was Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what is their response? Crucify him! They shouted, definitively in anger and disgust. Friends, how do they go from yelling, hail him, to nail him? Because they came with false expectations of who Jesus was. Why? Notice this. This isn't one time. Why? Pilate turns. Why? What crime has he committed? What's the answer? There, there's no thought. There's no logic. There's no contemplation. There's no realization. There's no recognition. There is only anger and more yelling. They shouted all the louder. Don't miss this. All the louder. And I won't blow the microphones or anything like that. What does this tell you about their hearts? We're done. We're done. Whoever this was, whoever this is, whatever expectation we had of him is not being met. And we want him gone. Crucify him. 
Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Friends, what expectation do we have of Jesus? What expectation do we bring? And friends, lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. I am not belittling your hearts. I'm not belittling your hurts. I'm not belittling your pain. I'm not belittling your hopes. But what I am asking lovingly and seriously is simply this. Do you have an expectation of Jesus that is causing you to move from hailing to wanting him to be nailed to the cross? A couple of things that I'd like to show you. First and foremost, we have to remember in this story that Jesus, while not guilty, willingly continues his mission to save us from our sins. Friends, I am amazed at Jesus' love for us. Because as we look at the examination, as we look at the judicial system that the Jewish people prided themselves in, the fairness of the trial, the reality of the trial, the account of the witnesses to assure that what they were doing was just, every single step of the way Jesus had a trial that was utterly corrupt, utterly unjust, utterly unfair, and utterly unrighteous. Yet the one who is righteous stayed silent to accomplish the will of the Father that we read back in Isaiah 53. Friends, earlier that evening, before Jesus had been arrested, before he had been betrayed, before he had moved into the intense aspect, he was in the garden. And in Mark 14.36, he says simply this, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I can't imagine what our Savior was experiencing in that moment. Knowing, recognizing, and realizing that He was doing the will of the Father so that we might have eternal life. Friends, there is no point where Jesus does not want to do what he has done. And what I want you to recognize as you read the account of Jesus' death is realize that every moment, 
every second, every lashing, every beating, every scoffing, every nail, everything that he endured, Jesus did so willingly so that we might have eternal life. In our fickleness and in our hailing of false expectation, where we too would have stood and said, you don't meet what we demand, crucify, crucify, crucify. Friends, that is a love that I honestly cannot comprehend. But it is a love that is so deep, it demands my all and it demands my soul. I love this because as we look at these verses, essentially right in the beginning, very early in the morning, we're going to read this kind of uh, in a little bit more detail. The chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole hand seat, uh, uh, Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. I just want to stop there and I want to tell you this. This is awful. Because all of those who were in charge and who prided themselves in a righteous trial, in a just trial, in a systematic form of justification, had a mission in mind, and it was to get rid of this man named Jesus. Why? Because he threatens our power and our authority. So throw it out the window, make it a sham and just get rid of this guy. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say. I'm not denying that, Jesus says. Those of you who hailed me on Sunday, who now are yelling for my crucifixion, I am who you say I am. But here's the point. I am your king. But I have not come to give you a kingdom here. I've come to give you a kingdom there, which will never end, which will never be destroyed, which will never, ever, ever be overcome. But friends, the reason that I do this is not so that you can have freedom from Roman oppression, a better life, a better marriage, more money, better health, but so that you may have eternal life. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to continue on? Aren't you going to try to justify yourself? Aren't you going to do something here to save yourself, little s? And I love this because what does Jesus do? Pilate even says, see how many things they are accusing you of? They've got you on everything. Aren't you going to do something to try to justify and save yourself from the punishment that is before you? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Because, friends, Jesus wasn't there to save himself. Jesus was there to save us from our sins. 
so that we might have eternal life. And friends, just when we think, oh, well, we can do it ourselves, we have the opportunity, I want to just simply throw this out to you. When we read in scriptures that we are dead in our sins, do not miss that word. Dead means no opportunity for life. We can not do it on our own. Our Savior is the one who does it all for us. Willingly, lovingly, and wholly. And so what I want to continue on is simply this. Then we look and we see now it is a custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people question. Interestingly enough, during this time each year to celebrate essentially the liberation of someone who was in tyranny, they would release a prisoner. It was sort of a reminder of them being released from the tyranny of Egypt. And so the custom was to say, who would you like? And I find it so interesting. We see that Barabbas, obviously guilty of murder and insurrection, is the one who is brought forward. And you have the choice of Barabbas or Jesus. And what do the people choose? Don't miss this. Friends, this is obvious that God's will is being accomplished and praise God for it, but it's also obvious that these people are so disheartened with the false expectation that they have of Jesus that they have become enraged to the point that they want nothing of him. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? One more reminder of which you praised him for being just a few short days ago. Well, he's been in prison. He's obviously not going to free us. There's nothing going to happen. We're not going to get Rome out of here. I don't have that. I didn't get that expectation. He hasn't saved my marriage. He hasn't brought me better health. He hasn't done this. I don't have more money. I don't have a better life. Sure, crucify him. I don't have a use for him. Are you sure? Yeah, get rid of him. Because he didn't meet my demand my expectation, my wants, my needs, my life, my genie in a bottle. And they don't even know what they really need. And friends, that's what we're here to celebrate today. We are here to celebrate that the need that is met is the accomplishment of Christ's righteous death on a cross so that we in our sin, in our deadness, in our inability to have eternal life and be righteous are declared righteous wholly and fully by the only one who was righteous, who endured the most unjust trial ever. And so friends, I just simply ask this. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, will our cry change from hail him to nail him? And I ask a heart check. 
if all Jesus ever does for you is save you from your sins, will you praise him? And oh my gosh, Lord, you have done so much more for me. And that's the cherry on the Sunday of which I am so grateful for to have breath, to have life, to have a home, to have a family, to have a place to worship, to have an opportunity to worship you in a country where we can still do so. But if all that goes away, if all of that is removed, if all of that is no longer, and yet I am still yours, and am I, I am a child of God, will I still praise you? Or when my expectations and my demands are not met, will my call of hail him change to nail him? Friends, this morning we've asked a question, and this is what I want to ask of us as we walk into Holy Week to remember and recognize truly what Christ has done for us. To go before God and say, what expectation do I have of you that is beyond what I deserve? And should you choose in your love, in your mercy, and in your grace to give it to me, then praise God for it. But God, you have already given me everything I need through your death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, which is eternal life through you, through the great debt that you paid on my behalf. Friends, the take-home truth that I'd like to leave with you this morning is this. If all Jesus ever does for us is save us from our sins, may we continue to hail him because he continued to be obedient to God's will, which was to nail him. If all Jesus ever does for us is save us from our sins, may we continue to hail him because he continued to be obedient to God's will, which was to nail him. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, God's passion for us. Friends, what I leave you with this morning is this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for you. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the blessedness of our Savior Jesus. Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for the joy of knowing that you are that much closer to the true purpose of the gospel, which was to go to the cross, to die upon it, and then to rise from the grave, triumphing over sin and death, giving us the opportunity to come to you in mercy and in grace. And crying out and saying, Lord, we cannot do it on our own, but Lord, we are so grateful that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you that in that death, you bring about life. Thank you that not only in that death, you bring about life, but you bring about life in the whole. Thank you that we are no longer guilty of our sin. We are no, no longer uh, going to be penalized for it because you took that punishment upon yourself. Father, as we look as we see, as we move to Thursday, as we contemplate your arrest, your betrayal, 
and your imprisonment. When we look at the unjust trial, when we look at you answering prophecy and going and completing the will of the Father and doing so joyfully, scorning the shame of the cross and turning to us who have yelled, crucify, 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 in agony saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. May that love drive us to a deeper relationship with you. Father, may that love be what brings us to a relationship with you. Father, may we know and recognize the great, great lengths of which you have gone so that we might have life through you. And that we are grateful. Father, may our hearts sink. May it be a dark time. May we wonder what it would be like had you not risen from the grave. And Father, as we celebrate Good Friday, as we essentially put that uh, last nail into your hand, as you breathe your last breath, may we realize that three days later you rise from the grave. Father, this coming Sunday, may we come with joyful jubilation, realizing that not because of what we have done, but all because of what you have done, we can shout with joy and proclamation, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,